In today's episode, we discuss the state of the Western world, the value of heritage, philosophy, the importance of the classics, the question, has science become the new religion, and how to make a better world. I really think you'll enjoy today's episode. If you have a couple of moments and you'd like to support the show, I ask you to give the episode a share, leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice, or check out the book that started it all, Renaissance Wisdom, How to Flourish in the Modern Day, available on Amazon. Today's show is brought to you by IcePod, finally an affordable, portable, and effective way to get the benefits of cold water immersion in the comfort of your own home. I opted for the Pro Bundle, which includes the IcePod, a water circulating pump, a special insulated lid, and a thermometer to check the temp of your water. Even in Georgia, the IcePod keeps my water between 60 and 70 degrees, and when I load it up with a 36-pack of water bottles that I use and refreeze after each session, I can easily get it around 50 degrees for the perfect cold water immersion experience. Despite being light and portable, the IcePod is super durable, and it's the perfect solution for anyone who wants to experience the benefits of cold water immersion without spending thousands of dollars for a home water chiller or trying to DIY your own. Cold immersion can help with recovery and muscle soreness, raise dopamine levels, help you wake up and be more alert, help you to burn more calories, mobilize brown fat, and more. Visit podcompany.com and use my special promo code SHANE50107 for $10 off your order, and each sale helps to support the show as well. Stay cool out there, people. Are you looking for the perfect high-protein snack that isn't loaded with stuff like MSG, nitrates, and sugar? Carnivore Snacks is the perfect high-protein snack made from quality grass-fed beef and salt. That's it. Each bag uses one pound of high-quality beef, lamb, pork, or chicken, salt, and nothing else. Aside from being easy, healthy, and convenient, they also taste great. These snacks are not just another jerky. They are way better. Give a bag a try, and I know you'll keep coming back. Check out Carnivore Snacks, spelled with an X, dot com, and enter coupon code SHANE05137 for 15% off your order, and each sale will help support the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast as well. Welcome to the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast, where ancient and modern wisdom come together to create a better way of living. I'm your host, Shane Sorensen, and each week we speak with successful people from a plethora of disciplines in search of wisdom from their own lives. Your own personal renaissance begins today. Let wisdom be your guide. Everybody. Welcome to the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Sorensen, and I have today's guest with me here, Spencer Clavin. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Shane. It's great to be here. So, uh, Spencer, I'm, I'm super excited to talk to you. And we, we talked a little bit about behind the scenes already. Um, I, I absolutely loved your book. I came across it. It seems like it's doing pretty well. I'm seeing it all over the place. I My day job, actually, I, I manage and have some ownership in a chain of gyms in Atlanta, and no had a guy come in to like cancel his membership and we got to talking about uh my book and he was like yeah you know there's this book uh he saw how to save the west sitting on the desk because i was reading it and you yeah. know he was like oh i just i keep seeing it everywhere how is it and i'm like man you you've got to go pick up this book uh was telling him about it so yeah i've got oh, it i've awesome. got it here um 
not a big fan of Excellent. dust covers. However, I did want to make sure everybody could see it there. Uh, <laughs> How to Save the West. It's If you guys have read my book, uh, Renaissance Wisdom, How to Flourish in the Modern Day, um, I, I think that you would be very, very interested in this book. Uh, he does an excellent job of just really explaining some of the, the philosophy that kind of goes into some of the chaos and some of the things that we're seeing in the modern world. So I, I definitely think that anybody with a, just a little bit of interest in philosophy or just understanding some of the craziness that we see, uh, definitely recommend the book. So enough of Thanks. me hyping you up. Uh, why don't you introduce <laughs> yourself and, you know, just tell us a little bit about your background and, and that sort of thing. Absolutely. Well, first of all, I have a couple of buddies in my gym who sort of saw me looking ragged at the end of the writing process, as I'm sure you <clears> can <throat> relate, and said, you know, what are you working on? And when I explained that I was writing a book, I they kind of like wanted copies of it. So I have been a, a gym evangelist of this book as well. It's awesome. like five different guys walking around reading it. Um, no, so, uh, you know, that's a very, very gracious, generous introduction. Thank you. As we discussed, I've, I've really been enjoying your work as well. Uh, we're obviously thinking along similar lines. I'll just, by way of introduction, give a little background on myself. I'm, I'm a classicist by trade. So my, you know, the time period in which I feel most at home is a little earlier than yours, pre-Renaissance, uh, kind of back in the, in the classical world, 500s, 400s BC, especially in Athens. And that's where I got my my start, but I was drawn to that subject because from a very, very early age, you know, I grew up kind of in this house surrounded by books. I was so lucky in that respect. And I didn't realize that was weird. You know, like I, I thought that everybody must love books, but as I go out into the world, you know, you start to realize I'm actually, I'm the weirdo. Like most people sort of regard ancient literature or, you know, just anything from before the scientific revolution is basically kind of backward or irrelevant or worse, like somehow, I don't know, prejudiced or, or whatever. Um, and in my heart from very young, I just knew that wasn't true. I mean, what I had learned growing up is that to be surrounded by books is to be surrounded by friends and especially to have just this incredible face-to-face -face access to the great men and women of the past that the canon gives us, you know, and, and as my understanding of that broadened out, I ended up, you know, really feeling a, a sense of urgency about this devotion to the West, which I define in the book as these two great streams of tradition, one from Athens, which is my first kind of intellectual home. And that's the, you know, the philosophers of Greco-Roman antiquity, the statesmen uh, of, of Rome and Greece. Uh, and, and then there's Jerusalem, which is the you know, kind of the revelation side of things, the scriptures and the wisdom literature and the traditions of the first the Jewish people and then uh, after, after them, the Christians, you know, that, that these kind of two strands of faith, when they meet with the Athenian tradition and the philosophers there and kind of spread outward through the Roman Empire, they really build the world that we are living in still today, despite how we may reject it, even if we don't know about it. I mean, even the ways in which we are currently going insane are kind of stamped with a mm -hmm. uniquely Western set of ideas, which I'm sure we can get into. But for me, you know, as the internet kind of drives us all insane, as the lid is blown off of so many of our previous assumptions, um, these kinds of 
uh, texts, these, these uh, efforts on the part of great men to wrestle with what it means to be human and how to be excellent at being human, um, they become so much more urgent in periods of crisis like this because you just need a ballast. You need somewhere to, um, to keep you steady, and that's the great tradition. So I'm, I'm, I'm here with this book basically just offering that to people a little bit because I think we've been denied it or deprived of it um, by folks that were selling us a bill of goods, you know, that this was somehow irrelevant, that it was evil, it was wrong to think about the West, um, when actually it, it might be the one thing that can kind of bring us back to some sanity. Yeah, man, that, that's uh, that's very, very well said. And it's, again, like, as I'm reading through your book, I, I see so many, like, congruencies with kind of my thinking. Uh, yeah. And, you know, what I talk about in my book, I think, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to pay you a, a big compliment here too. Um, <laughs> don't, like, don't, don't do that too many times or my head will get too yeah. big, but uh, I'll, I'm ready. I'm braced. I'm braced. Yeah. I'm, I mean, so like, as I'm, as I'm reading through your work and just the, the level of detail and obviously like, I know you, you know, you, you have a PhD, you know, you, you've yeah. dedicated your life to this. This is something that I picked up, you know, as a, I'll, I'll say a, ho a hobby, you know, six, seven, eight years ago. <laughs> and I've, I've read a ton but as you mentioned, you know, I know you said you, you've been a classicist by training. You've been surrounded by these books from a young age. And it like it really shows in your work. You you really, really, really know your stuff. And for me, like sometimes I feel like the weirdo when I'm talking about, uh, you know, philosophy and my level of knowledge, which huh. you know, like I, I feel like a like a little moon that's eclipsed by the sun when I'm reading your stuff. Like I, I can tell that you really, really know the stuff and when I write my book and I talk about, you know, men like Petrarch, or I talk about, uh, you know, men like Poggio Bracciolini and, and some of these guys that really, really delved into this ancient world and revived this way of thinking and put it forward for a new generation. Like, you know, I, I can see you as that sort of like torchbearer of kind of carrying that, that light from antiquity. So I, I think that, uh, you should definitely continue wow. in what you're doing. I think it's really, really important, really powerful. So. Wow. Well, thank you. That is a humbling, uh, a humbling tribute. And I, I appreciate that. I think you sell yourself a little bit short, perhaps in, in part because, you know, there's there's a kind of a, a certain kind of conversation that I've had often in my career, especially after I launched my podcast, uh, which is called Young Heretics, and which is a, just a weekly kind of deep dive into one or more of these of these texts. Um, I would meet people who would listen to the show or just appreciated the work. And they'd start out by saying, you know, I'm not that smart. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and this was like, what I quickly began to realize is that the minute somebody said that I was about to have one of the most interesting conversations <laughs> of, of my month, right? Um, sure. Because what they meant by I'm not that smart was like, I don't have the PhD, basically. I'm, I, I'm a kind of a hobbyist. I'm, I'm more, uh, like, you know, uh, I, I, I'm listening to you while I'm on my tractor is like something that I heard very early on, like that sort of thing. And that idea that if you're not an egghead, if you're not a professional academic, you sort of don't have as much ownership or as much right to enter into this great conversation. I think that's a very modern idea. And I think it's a very mistaken idea because you know well the men that built the renaissance were often not professional scholars sure. they were men of action right i mean they were they were working on the farm from some of them you know the i i think of even even machiavelli you know in, right, in yeah. exile who who writes one of his greatest 
uh, you know, one of my favorite things he ever wrote was this letter to Francesco Vittori about what he, you know, mm -hmm. what he does all day and coming in from the fields and putting off his working clothes and entering into this communion with great minds. I mean, it, it, it's, it's those sorts of people, people who are out living in the real world, trying to puzzle through you know, actual problems um, that that can relate in some ways to guys like, you know, Plato, Aristotle, um, Thomas Aquinas, because these guys are trying to figure out real answers to real questions. They're not in some abstruse kind of fantasy yeah. land. Um, and I think that, you know, both of us uh, in, in our different ways are really attached to that, to the reality of, of the stuff that these guys are, are dealing with. So it's definitely not like a, an elite sport in that, in that sense. It's, it's more of a kind of universal quest. Sure. And uh, you, you'll, you'll think this is really funny when you, when you get to the end of my book, like that's actually how I close yeah. out my book is that letter. Um, because I, okay. I was thinking yeah. like, how do I end this book? And, you know, I, when I came across that in like my research and my studies, I, I could yeah. not think of a better way to close the book with like, like that's the spirit of the ancient world and the Renaissance right there. Like I, I go out and I play card games with my friends and we talk shit to each other and, yeah. you know, I wipe the dirt from the fields off, you know, like on my lunch break, I, I read some Shakespeare, you know, I, I read mm -hmm. some like some ancient work. And, you know, at the end of the day, I go in and I take my clothes off and I put my garb and I, you know, dim the lights and I pull my book out and I'm in, in a court with the ancients. Right. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the power of the ancient world to just, to just transport us. And, um, you know, something I'll touch on, which I, I do talk about fairly frequently too, is, you know, there, there's definitely a difference. Like I'm not necessarily a person that's impressed by a degree, um, yeah. especially in philosophy, because I, I've run into a lot of people, <laughs> You know, they're, they're like so obsessed with Kant and like metaphysics and just arguing about like these, <laughs> these terms that maybe I don't, you know, fully understand, but it's like, who, who really understands them? Like at, at the right. end of the day, like, I think sometimes some of these philosophers got so, <laughs> so like just out there in their thinking and so uh, vague that I don't even yeah, know yeah. that they knew what they were talking about. And, um, you know, as you know, the, the spirit of philosophy, right? It starts in wonder. It's, it's a lover of wisdom. It's not like a, a lover of this like weird abstract knowledge that doesn't have mm -hmm. any kind of like function. And I, I think there's a place for thought experiments. I think there's a place for questioning things. Right. But yeah. to me, like a yeah. philosopher is not, not someone that's just like, you know, buried in these really, really abstruse like books. It's someone that loves wisdom that wants to apply wisdom to their life. And I think that, you know, that's something that I see in you is that you're not just like, you know, the, the textbook philosophy nerd, but, you know, you're <laughs> like actually kind of living and trying to apply and seek out wisdom. So, you know, I think that to me, that's the more impressive part of, other than, you know, just the PhD and like the, the background in it. Well, uh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, you mentioned Petrarch and some of the architects of the Renaissance. And, and that's really been, um, that, that idea has been on my mind a lot because I think all of us really who have discovered the value of ancient wisdom of the, of the tradition, you know, of the canonical virtues of seeking excellence of, of the kind of, you know, plane of, of life that is more than just material. Um, all of us, are suddenly realizing that we're kind of rummaging through a wasteland to a certain extent that so much has been 
lost or forgotten or denied already. And at the same time, much as, you know, the kind of the architects of of the Renaissance might have might have felt this way, too, I guess, you know, there's this enormous new world kind of bursting forth around us with with many, many challenges, but also these incredible opportunities. I mean, I think it's at the outset of The Prince that Machiavelli says, you know, I'm going to put forward a new theory of statecraft. And that's likely to make me vulnerable to as much envy as if I were discovering a new continent. And of course, he's referring there to, to the new world, right, which is which is opening up physically as these new kind of vistas are, are opening up philosophically. And I think, you know, look, you and I are sitting here right now having a conversation that would have been impossible, like 50 years ago, right? Yeah. There's no way I don't think that we would ever have crossed paths that we would have been able to read one another's work. Um, and we are, you know, and, and suddenly for all that digital technology has sort of destroyed so much about our, our lives or exacerbated our problems, um, it's also created this kind of fellowship that, that you kind of instantly can recognize people when they're on this journey, they're on this path. Um, the, the Stoics had this term of procoptone for their students, which is the guy walking along the path, you know. Um, and I do sort of wonder in my in my more white pilled days when I'm like a, a little more optimistic. Um, I I wonder whether this kind of quiet new revolution is a sort of renaissance, like is 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 sort of the rebirth of something um, that was maybe difficult, more difficult to access in the pre internet age. That now yeah. there's this kind of flourishing all of a sudden of, of interest in this stuff. Yeah. I definitely find myself thinking the exact same thing at times, mm-hmm. you know, uh, there's days where I look, look around and it's, it's hard to like have any hope, you know, like that there are <laughs> yeah. those days where I just, I look around and I'm like, ah, we're done for Like, it's too late. No, no one can correct the, the course of the ship. Like it's just, we're, we're waiting for the wreck. We just don't know when it's going to come. And then there's days where I, mm. you know, have a conversation like this, you know, I, I see something out there. It just gives me a little bit of hope. There's just a little bit of light out there in their darkness. And I felt, you know, incredibly drawn in my study towards Patriarch because he, he was very, very expressive. And obviously he was a poet. Um, he, he was very drawn to that, like that idea and that symbology of him kind of living in an age of darkness and believing that there was this light shining and antiquity mm-hmm. that he could sort of extract and, um, you know, I, I think that he was very aware and, and I talk about that also in the book where there was this, uh, they, they call it the energizing myth. I, I think it was a French scholar. I can't remember his name. Um, maybe it was like Ch- Shabad, but, uh, mm. he had this idea of like the energizing myth of the Renaissance. And that was part of what made it so powerful was that people believed in this kind of myth that there was this awakening or this, this special thing happening. And, the fact that people believed in it kind of became a self-fulfilling prophecy and mm-hmm. um, it actually caused the Renaissance to sort of exist because there was this belief. And, uh, you know, I know you're, you're into like some of the biblical study and stuff too. So you, you think about like, you know, Jesus, when he talks about faith and just having just a little bit of faith in something can move a mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's something so interesting in that, uh, you know, th- those guys were were rediscovering, of course, the ancient world. You know, that was what it was supposed to be a rebirth of. Um, right. And uh, they've, com- they've come under some 
they've taken some flack, I guess, for having, you know, tarred the whole Middle Ages, like a thousand years worth of, of history. Um, right. It wasn't called the Middle Ages yet, but it would be become the Middle Ages in part because of this idea, right, that there had been darkness and now there, there was light. Um, and yet, you know, there's, a, of course, also a lot to this, you know, I think of Giorgio Vasari's introduction to the lives of the eminent poets and, and or the lives of the eminent painters, excuse me. Um, and he does talk about the fact that in its zeal to establish Christendom, the church had sort of done away with a lot of pagan uh, excellence, essentially, and that now gradually that was kind of coming back to the surface. And it's almost as if now, in its zeal to establish modernity, the world has kind of done away with the Middle yes. Ages, right? Like the, the mm -hmm. medieval era is sort of what <clears throat> needs a rebirth in, in a certain sense. And a lot of, uh, a, a lot of the best stuff right now is, is coming out of, I mean, think of like John, Jonathan Peugeot, um, these kind of like symbolist interpretations that feel very medieval in, in their way. And just like recovering that sense of, of magic, the sense that, you know, actually the, the world is not simply a machine that just runs like, clockwork it's full of symbols and and meaning and significance um and i do get into this a little bit in in my book you know that one of the things about the world and and therefore about the west is that you're always sort of on the verge of collapse right with things being the way that they are human beings are, are really not all that good at maintaining civilization um and so of course of course you know there, there's all sorts of danger around us. Um, and of course, it's easy to feel as if something very dark may be on the horizon. But you know, unto this hour, were we born, like nobody guaranteed us that we were going to have sort of an easy life where, you know, civilization flourished without our really having to do anything about it. Like, that's sort of not the way and that's not the time the kind of time in which, you know, really great men have the opportunity to live. So I, to a certain extent, I feel kind of an excitement when I think about like, yeah, there's there's this weird like new rebirth of the stuff that was kind of uh, that was lost in the old rebirth somehow. Like it needs it needs yeah. to come back. Well, <clears throat> you know something that I, as we talked about before, you know I've I've had a bit of a like a spiritual awakening and process in mm -hmm. my in my own life, and something that I didn't feel uh, when I first wrote my book that I now feel. And I see now, um, you know, reading through your book, I see it too. Like, I, I think that, you know, during the Renaissance, right, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like all of these guys, all of these men that were writing, they were deeply religious for the most part. I mean, they were deeply religious. It was religion was very, very ingrained in society at that point. And I, I make clear mm -hmm. that, right, like Renaissance humanism is very distinct from modern humanism be, because of that. I mean, that that's yeah. one of the big distinguishers is that uh, these guys would have filtered everything that they kind of read and believed through a Christian lens. And yeah. the church, right, like, you know, the Catholic church throughout history, um, sometimes like the, the actual church and the religion becomes very separated from like actually being a Christian. And I think that, you know, that's kind of what one of the things that we saw in the Middle Ages was that they were very, very oppressive of critical thought. And hmm. what I see in today's age is that like science has become the new religion, right? Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. now we've we've devolved to a point and you talk about this, you know, you articulate it way better than what I'm going to articulate in your book. But uh, 
you know, you talk about this idea of science sort of like oppressing all critical thought and, you know, it, it's shifted our political landscape in such a way that it's like free thinking and questioning sort of like a consensus has become mm. like a right wing kind of thing. Like if you're a free thinker and you don't yeah. like agree with the narrative, you're, you're right wing now, you know, it's like they, Joe Rogan's like right wing, you know, like I know, yeah. everybody's right stuff, wing. <laughs> it's all fascist coded. It's like all the stuff that would have made you a crunchy granola liberal, like, you know, 10 years before I was born is yeah. now like this sort of crypto fascist, you know, if you, if you want to grow your own food, if you want to live on a, like a farm, these are all things that somehow make you into like a terrorist, a domestic terrorist, essentially. Um, but I think you make a really good point about kind of the, the scientific, I, I wouldn't even call it the scientific establishment because, you know, there is no, there is no scientific establishment. That's the whole point, right? Science is a kind of discipline of open inquiry or it should be. Um, but what I would call the scientistic establishment, that is this kind of cadre yeah. um, of, you know, so-called thought leaders, self-appointed thought leaders who have essentially bought into the idea that everything true was discovered after Darwin. And you can find this claim made explicit. And I think I cite this in the book, you know, that in um, Richard Dawkins book, The Selfish Gene, he introduces this quote from a paleontologist saying everything, basically, you know, every, every good answer to the questions of, of life was thought up after the theory of evolution was discovered. And we should basically disregard everything else uh, bef before that. And the unsustainability of that is so extreme like the the things that science doesn't aim to answer can't answer can't speak about things like you know the qualitative experience of human life just what it feels like to yeah. fall in love like these are all things that you know science will, scientists will sort of claim that they've explained that once they've identified the chemicals that are at work in your body when it happens but of course, that gets you not one inch closer to an account of really what love is in its essential human nature. And so it's totally impossible to look at the world this way, to live this way. Even the people that say they think this don't really, you know, live that way. And, and so what has happened instead is that science has become a kind of pseudo religion. That's scientism at its mm -hmm. height, like yeah. the final boss form, right? Um, and I would argue that it's more close-minded, more censorious, more strict in its censure of, of wrong think than the Catholic Church in the height of the Inquisition ever was. I mean, I'm being a little bit oh, – I'm sort of overstating, of course, because, like, we're not burning people at, at the stake just yet, to my knowledge. But there is this sense that, yeah, as you say – like our faith conviction has become that everything is matter in motion. And if it's not that, if it can't just be described that way, uh, then it doesn't exist. But much as the great men of the Renaissance were sort of by and large kind of Christians um, to, the, to their bones, many of the great men of the scientific revolution were also devout Christians. I mean, Johannes Kepler comes to mind. Newton was a Christian of a certain stamp. Uh, Galileo even, you know, went to his death, so far as we know, believing in, in God. And it was because he believed in God that he thought the universe should make sense, right? That there should be a rational mind governing the way that things move, that, uh, you know, that has communicated some part of his plan or his, his ideas to our mind. And that's why we can understand. Like, if you don't think that, there's really no reason to expect that science 
will work at all. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I definitely get the sense that the real kind of rebellious uh, thought crime in our day is simply to take it as real that there's something more to us than matter, like just to accept that there is a soul um, or to actually act as if that were true is kind of the most radical uh, thing yeah. that you can <clears throat> say. Yeah, I, I I can't remember who I was speaking to. I, I spoke to someone, this is, this is like, you know, months back and I just, it really struck me. You know, they were talking about like, you know, what do you, what do you do to rebel as a kid these days? Right. Because, yeah. you know, when I was a kid, you know, even back in like the nineties, what you did to rebel was like, you know, you, you spiked your hair up and dyed it, you dyed it green and you, you listened to <laughs> punk rock music and you had chains and studs on you. And, uh, you know, it's like now everything is like, you know, so progressive, right? We we've allowed everything to be acceptable. There's like, there's no bullying anymore for the most part. You know, it's like, we're, we've become so open-minded that it's like, <laughs> what you do now yeah. is like you, you convert to like Greek, Greek Orthodox, right? You know, yeah. and like, you're like, I'm, I'm like Greek Orthodox Christian. Like, that's how you like rebel now. Um, right. And it, it's, right. you know, it is crazy that we've gotten there. I, I want to talk on like, we've talked a little bit about political kind of uh, climate and also, you know, just how kind of free thinking I think in general has shifted to where that's kind of become like a right wing idea. So I wanted to ask you specifically, and this is, you know, a bit of curiosity on my part as well. Like um, what, what's like the reception been like for you on a personal level? Because even though I think you're, you're very, 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 uh, open-minded and you don't put your ideas forth in a very politically charged way. Like I, I don't feel you're attacking anyone. Right. But I oh, know that there are people <laughs> yeah. that are going to read your book or would read your book and they would think it's an all out assault on like progressive values, right. On like the progressive right. world. And uh, you know, what, what's your personal reception been? Have you, have you received a lot of hate? Have you received mostly support? Like what, what's it like out there? You know, just being a being on the forefront of kind of the the thought ideas. It's interesting, you know, um, and I'm, I'll be interested once I answer to hear what it's like for you as well, because the first thing, the easiest and, and truest thing to say is that I have like the world's best audience, like just a, a, a gang of really lovely people that basically found my podcast and which I was doing, by the way, without any expectation that people would be interested. I, I literally was like, well, if I'm going to do a podcast, I'm just going to do what I want to talk about. And that's like obscure. It's like Homer. It's like obscure Greek poetry. And immediately I had this experience. It was like holding out this little morsel of food and suddenly discovering that there's a world of hunger out there, right? Like, because the richness of this stuff is so much better and more satisfying than what's available yeah. on CNN, you know? that those are the people, the people that are hungry for that are the people that I tend to attract to my little, you know, fiefdom. And those people are just, you know, really to me, the most beautiful souls, you know, like that there's their fellow seekers. Um, they're, they're people who are genuinely sincere. And even when they disagree with me or when they argue, they do so in just a really gracious way. So, so at that level in my little world, you know, everything is great. Now, of course, as as I'm sure you've experienced, saying anything that is forcefully kind of anti-progressive. Um, and you're right, I'm not here to like 
bang a drum or write a screed or or whatever. Um, but saying any of this stuff is is going to bring you in for for criticism, right? It's going to kind of make you um, an object of hatred. And I've been like, you know, sometimes Twitter dunked on by some massive like pro-abortion account or or whatever, and then you just have to kind of like mute your mentions for a little bit because they're you're, they're going to like scream at you and say vile stuff, or you can kind of ride the wave and like punch back a little bit. But you know, one of my greatest satisfactions in the process of writing this book was when I sat down to record the audiobook. And I I kind of, you know, you always, I, maybe you don't, but I always wince when I go back to my old work in, in fear that it's not going to hold up, that it's not going to be quite as good as I hoped it would be or whatever. Um, and so I sit down and I'm going to like read this whole thing start to finish. And the thing that really struck me as I was reading, is, you know, this is really not a screed, you know, like I, as I was writing, I thought this is a pretty like forceful set of statements yeah. about how to, how to live well. But I was like, no, this isn't actually, I'm, I'm not angry at all. And I think that's the key um, is that so much of our anger, even righteous anger, right? Even when people are justifiably frustrated with the pieties of the modern world, when there's injustice and, and people get mad about it. Um, when we, when we scream over that, when, when our voice kind of reaches that feet, that pitch of, of fury, um, it's, it's always obvious that we're operating from a place of weakness and fear, right? Because we feel threatened. And of course, the world is very threatening, like, don't get me wrong. But the, the truth is never threatened, right? This was St. Augustine's great quote, it's like a lion, let it out and it will defend itself. And I think that if you really believe in this stuff, if you believe there's a soul, if you believe that right and wrong are not matters of mere interpretation, but are moral absolutes, um, if you believe that there is such a thing as the good and that life is kind of designed to invite you into it, that you're supposed to strive for it, um, then you don't have to be afraid. You don't even have to be afraid if they come to crucify you, you know, like now, of course, I would be very afraid if that happened. Yeah. I don't mean to like portray myself as some superhuman hero, but like, the the proper posture, I think, is always confidence rather than anger. Um, and once you like see that, so much of the criticism that comes at you just seems like flimsy and small. Like that's what's really surprised me most about having a bigger public presence is that when these people start screaming at me, I always thought I would be kind of like hurt by it. And I'm actually just sort of bemused or even like a little sad, you know, like, what are you, yeah. what are you doing with your life that you feel like you have to scream at a stranger on the internet or paint your face and go outside the Supreme court and take your shirt off? Like what, what's happening there? You know? Um, so I guess that, yeah, like there's, there's always internet gunk. Like that's kind of, uh, you, 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 uh, bake that in when you set off in a career like this, but, um, I, I really think the key is actually not, it's just to be a little bit less angry. We could, we could do with, with more of that. Um, anyway, what about you? What's, what's your experience of this been like? <clears throat> well, you know, I've, I've been, I've tried to be really, really, really mindful to try to stay as neutral as I, I can mm. kind of up until this point. But I think that I'm, I've kind of reached a point where I'm like, okay, if I'm going to be labeled a right wing extremist at this point, <laughs> You know, I'm, yeah. I've like, I've been talking to a lot more people that would be considered, you know, on the right end of the spectrum. And it's, it's like, it, it drives me crazy to even say it because, you know, it's like, I'm sitting and talking with you and having a discussion and, and like, I know you're not a right wing extremist, right? Like I, I understand <laughs> this because I have like a, an actual grasp on reality, 
but <laughs> so many people would read your book and they would be so like triggered. Right. And I guess I've, I've kind of reconciled myself to the, the idea that if, if that's going to happen to me, which at some point, you know, if I garner enough of a following, it's probably going to happen just because it's unfortunately the way that the, the world is, um, a little like side story when I hired an editor for my book, you know, he's from the UK and mm. he actually, you know, he's like, you know, I really think you need to put like a disclaimer at the beginning of your book that kind of like, you know, mentions that there are like other cultures and stuff that like have value and try to be a little bit more like inclusive. Cause I think that people might read your book and be like, Oh, well it's, you know, so focused on like the Western mind and colonialism and you know, yada, yada. And I, uh -huh. like, I wrote this little, like disclaimer that I put at the beginning of the book and I hate it. I like, I hated writing it. I hate, <laughs> I hate that it's there. Um, hmm. Cause I, you know, like I, I don't think that I need to be apologetic for having a, um, you know, focus and a, a love for, you know, not just kind of like the, the history and the culture that shaped our world, but you know, my, my personal kind of like heritage. I, I, th I don't think that's something that we should need to apologize for. And I, I don't think that being proud of, you know, your tradition in your world or, you know, having patriotism for your country or, you know, th these aren't, these aren't racist, like <laughs> supremacist ideas, right? Like it, it's okay for every culture and society to, to celebrate their history, except for, you know, someone that's from the Western, you know, kind of like European tradition. Uh, that's what's and most, that, that's the only one that's not allowed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that, you know, that, that's, that's, uh, that's not okay. And I'm, I'm to a place where I'm just, I'm okay with saying that and if that gets me canceled or, you know, if some people don't listen to my podcast or don't want to read my book because of that, like, you know, I, I just, I'm okay with it now. I think I, I've, I've definitely reconciled myself to, to that fact. And, um, I caught a little bit of this, like recently I've, I've gone on to the carnivore diet. So I'm, I'm doing carnivore. I had a, a guest on nice, a while man. back. Um, Anthony Chaffee, uh, Chaffee, sorry, Dr. Anthony Chaffee. He's pretty, pretty prominent yeah. in the, uh, the field and, you know, talking with him really, like, really pushed me over the edge. I kind of cut out fruit and things too. Um, hmm. but you know, I'll do like a, a post or like one of my sponsors is carnivore snacks and, you know, people are like, how oh, dare you? They get so angry. <laughs> and, um, like you said, I think that so much of the anger that we see in today's world is it's really coming from a place of pain, you know, and yeah. that like where you said, you kind of, you, you sort of feel sorry for someone. Like when you see someone that their, their life is such a mess, there's so much chaos, they're so angry and hurt. And a lot of this stuff is just coming from a place of like, not feeling at home, not feeling a part of anything. And it just kind of like, like an animal does when an animal's backed in a corner and hurt, you know, it's going to mm. lash out and bite someone. Um, I, I think that at an individual level, I have a lot of faith in human beings. And I, I think that we're, we're basically good and people basically want to do good. Um, but we, we just kind of come to a place where it's, I think people are just very, uh, very lost. Well, you know, I think what you said about, you know, being backed into a corner, that's, that's really beautifully put. And I, I, I think that must be. Right. First of all, you know, if you're running, if you're running gyms and you're lifting weights 
and you're eating red meat, it's already a lost cause. I mean, you're a foregone yeah. right wing extremist. Like, yeah. you know, it's, uh, no, that's that's one of the things that has suddenly become bizarrely, <clears throat> quote unquote, right coded is like wanting to get big and go to the gym and whatever. And like that just speaks to, I think, the depth with which these categories have like sunk into people's brain crevices, you know, that you would get sponsored by a, a dietitian essentially, or talk to a dietitian and suddenly you have betrayed people or whatever. And by the way, the right is not immune to this. I mean, it's, it, it, it's very easy to fall afoul of some purity test or another. If people have kind of pegged you as their, you know, right wing champion or their conservative hero, like, one thing that struck me recently, and I was talking a little bit with some other friends that podcast about this, is, you know, when you and I get behind the mic and we have these conversations or we speak, you know, we monologue, um, we do very much, I think, imagine ourselves in a relationship with the people on the other end who are listening, right? Like they're here, we hope, because there's something we have to offer them that they can take away and, and chew on. And from that stance, if that's your perspective, well, if you or I say something that, you know, we disagree with or that the people listening disagree with, it's like, okay, fine. Like, don't do that thing. That's sort of normal. Every friendship, every relationship has that in it. Um, so just take what is useful to you and maybe think through why you disagree with the rest. And you might sharpen your own point of view. That all seems perfectly normal and part of the course. But a lot of times the relationship isn't actually the same on the other end. Like the people listening aren't always thinking about you the same way you're thinking about them. To them, you are their spokesperson or their mouthpiece, right? Like you are somehow the champion of a set of views that they feel they can't get out there as effectively or they feel is threatened and, and is kind of under assault. And so then if you deviate from that, if you think the truth lies somewhere else, then like then it's a betrayal, right? Then you've somehow let them down or, mm. or what have you. And that's just, I think, to me, the, the part that is unhealthy and that speaks to a need of real relationship. Like people are sometimes using parasocial relationships and online uh, fandoms as substitutes, like tofu versions of deep community and family, which has been so eroded in the kind of acid bath of the modern world. Like none of us have these kind of like deep roots and, the, you know, we've maybe not lived in the same place for a long time. Um, and so we're turning instead to these kind of like online visions of the world to give us our sense of mattering, which explains, if you think about it, why every political movement is now framed in terms of like black lives matter, you know, this, this trans lives matter, this or that matters. It's like, if you need this political coalition to tell you that you matter, um, then I think, you know, I, like, I, I wish something better for you. Like, I, I, I think you ought to have people around you to, to whom you matter. And that's one of the great kind of insights, I think, of the classical tradition is that you, ought, you need to be nested inside of a family network. You need to be nested inside of a community um, because otherwise that hunger for mattering is only going to be deeper and deeper. Like it's, it's going to be bottomless. And in order to satisfy it, you have to just like yell at people until they fall in line, which explains a lot of what's going on. Yeah, it is. Um, you, you bring up like a really good point about just, you know, obviously like if you're having a conversation with a friend, you try to be, 
if you have like any kind of awareness or empathy, right? You try to be like aware of things that may trigger them, right? You know, like if sure, and I I, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't use the word trigger, but uh, you know, <laughs> I'm that, like, triggered by your use of that word trigger. I'm afraid, yeah, no, no, I, I get what you mean, and like yeah. that's a thing. Sure. You're, you're, you're like, you know, hey, like if, if I got this friend and I know that he's sensitive to being short, I'm not going to make a joke about him being short, right? You just, you oh, I definitely like, am, just to be clear. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're like, I'm going to get in there anyway. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the exactly wound. where I'm going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, okay. You know, like for the most part, we, we try to be sensitive to, um, you know, like people around us. We, we try to be considerate. You know, I think like if you have like, again, any any kind of awareness, like, I try not to stand in someone's way at the store or block the, block the aisle with my cart or, you know, whatever, just these little things that we do. Cause we're just trying to be, I guess, like active, you know, good members of society. And <clears throat> I feel that, you know, like one of the things that I think about is like with progressivism and uh, particular is it's like, there's this idea of like, we have to be intolerant of intolerance. Right. Mm, um, yes. That that's that's definitely I think a big danger to democracy to our modern society, and, and another thing is too as you mentioned with like the the technological world, and you know people being canceled. It, it's so easy. Like when I posted a uh, I posted a like a story of me like with a steak. You know I cooked a steak, and someone was like, you know how dare you? You know you you like <laughs> you're you're killing animals, you're causing hate in the world, and all <sighs> these terrible things, and they're like unfollowed. Right. It's so right. easy to just like push the button and the person's gone. And, mm. uh, you know, I feel like maybe that's more of a thing that's happened because of, you know, the ability to do that, right? Because you can push a button and block someone and they've just been removed. And then that translates into kind of your daily life. And you're like, okay, well, if there's someone that I disagree with, they're just gone. There is no, yeah. there is no dialogue. There is no discussion of, you know, what we disagree about and, you know, let's, let's find a resolution and find where we can kind of have common ground as a human being. It's just click, you're gone. Yep. I'll just, yeah, I just won't yeah. talk to that person anymore. Um, I wonder if that's a little bit mm. of a symptom of, you know, the, the modern age, right. And the ability to just remove someone. That's so interesting. Yes. Because it's like a kind of power that you feel you can exert over them when you don't have any other power, right? I mean, there's this weird relationship of imbalance between the podcaster and the listener, right? Or, or whatever, the influencer and the follower. Like the, the person that is on the other side of that screen, it's like if they hurt you in some way and you have this impulse to lash out, all you can do is quote unquote punish them by like depriving them of one number on their follower count, right? And as you say, what that actually does, it probably doesn't bother, you know, the, the person on the other end too much, but it does erase from your view, everybody with like anything remotely different about them that you might like disagree with or, or whatever. Um, I talk about this, you may not have gotten to this part in the book quite yet, but at the very end, I talk about this, this Greek concept of philia, which is one of the forms of love in, in the Greek language. And famously, Greek has all these different words for love. Um, but philia is the one that we typically translate as friendship. It's a kind of companionable love. Um, and there is a brand of philia called politike philia, which comes from the Greek word polis, polis being a city, right? And that's where we get politics. Is like, how do you build your city life together? And, you know, the ancients, the, the great philosophers, they spent 
pages and pages or rolls and rolls, I guess, of papyrus, you know, puzzling out the different forms of regime and analyzing in minute detail all the ways that you can organize your society. Much of that enormously valuable. And, you know, I, I don't want to speak ill of it, but there's this moment in Aristotle's politics where he basically says, you know, all of these regimes are fundamentally an act of love. That your big C constitution, as we would put it, like your laws, your written laws, um, are permeated and kind of held up by the small C constitution, or what in Greek is called the politeia, like the cityness, the just general vibe of of your of your life together in a neighborhood. And we're talking here about small communities. Aristotle says it's the distance that a town crier can travel in a day. That's basically how big uh, a city you can have and still be a coherent political unit. And the way that you do that is you marry and you uh, do rituals of, you know, sacrifice together. You, you perform religious acts together. Um, we might say like you go to ball games, you know, you go to concerts, whatever. Um, just all the stuff that like you or I might do with the people kind of in our immediate neighborhood and vicinity. And that's politique philia. That's civic friendship or even civic love. Um, not like, oh, we're all going to get along so great. But because of these things that we share, kind of like you were saying earlier, you know, that it's not wrong or evil to love what is your own. That's a very ancient idea. That this is actually kind mm -hmm. of a natural kind of love. Um, and to love the thing that's right outside your back backyard is is what Roger Scruton calls oikophilia, right? Love of home. Um, and, and once you kind of understand that as the glue of a civilization, um, you see why so much of this other stuff is so poisonous, right? Like, oh, you're inherently racist because you're white or, you know, like you and I can get along because I'm gay and you're straight or like whatever, all of this stuff that just sort of boxes us into these categories and then says like, and therefore... There is no way for you to share fellowship, right? There's just no, and, and like that to me as sort of simple and maybe even hokey as it sounds, like that's the most needful word maybe of, of antiquity is, is philia, is the sense that you're actually in human space-time together building a common endeavor, which is, a, you know, to put it mildly, not the kind of dynamic that you just described. Yeah. And and that makes me think too. Uh, a thought that comes to my mind a lot is kind of the nature of the reality and how reality has been so fractured because hmm. of specifically being able to isolate yourself inside of like an Instagram or Twitter echo chamber and hmm. you know media consumption. Like you can have five people that live next door to each other in the same town, and they can live in totally totally different realities like one one person wow. Wow. they do nothing yeah. but sit and watch cnn all day you know you got the person next door like all they do is just like scroll twitter on like the left wing then you got someone next door all they do is like sit around and watch fox all day then then you got someone yeah. next door they they watch like the daily wire constantly you know like and you'll have mm. these five different you know families that are geographically like as close as you can possibly be and they would like be on totally different planets. And that's something mm. that, you know, with the internet and the consumption of, of media and the spread of kind of information that I think we've never experienced this. This is, it's never been like this before. Most of the people in history, like even with big, big media news, like they watch the same news channels. Yeah. Maybe there were mm. you know, two or three options, but 
people were kind of on like a shared wavelength. And uh, I guess, you know, we, we, you talk about that, right. That's part of the chaos as well is like, how do, how do we relate to anybody anymore? Because you're, you can just isolate yourself into this little world. You know, it's, it's fascinating. Um, I, as you're talking, I'm thinking, what's the closest analog for this? Because you're right, this particular situation sort of um, seems unprecedented. And the closest thing I'm able to think of is, you know, if you were an Athenian, say, mm -hmm. in the 5th century BC, um, you would effectively live in a separate universe from you know, a, a Chinese person or like a Han, you know, or whatever the, you know, I, I'm not that up on Chinese history, but you would be like, you know, you, you would be occupying an almost entirely different universe, not just geographically, but like the world would look different to you, the, yeah. the sort of underlying premises of it. Um, and so before kind of mass communications, it's, it was sort of the norm for there to be pockets of human civilization that were effectively hermetically sealed universes. Then, of course, all of that is sort of broken and changed by like from the printing press onward, right? We just get more and more sure. global. And now, as you're describing, we have this new situation where there are all of these different worlds, thought worlds, but they're layered over on top of one another geographically so that you can kind of live side by side with people who effectively are the same. They might as well be living in Athens and you in China, right? Yeah. Um, and, and that is a really remarkable situation. It puts me in mind of um, Augustine's City of God, where he famously says that the City of God and the City of the World are two different spirits, right? One is oriented to love of God, one toward love of self, um, but they have no geographical location. They're interspersed throughout the whole world because these are attitudes, like states of mind and, and, um, and perspectives. And so one thing that, it seems to me is happening is like with all of this people moving to red states and blue states and you know shifting around it's, it's like people are seeking some physical like embodied representation of their various like pockets and and divisions they're trying to like resort into these communities physical communities that reflect yeah. their sort of actual meta communities um and and that may work, it may not, but I, I, I actually feel as if like the reason that online connections are becoming so important is because like we do sort of occupy these these regions of thought, this, these parts of the world. Um, and, and when we find one another, even if we live like, you know, states or countries away, it feels like we're kind of building this little like remote spiritual city or something like the city of um, the city of classical wisdom or the city of like the, whatever Beauty and the Beast fandom, like the, take your take your pick. Um, and I guess, yeah, we, we are trying, I think, with limited success to like uh, find ways of, of living together. I, and, and I my hope is like my optimistic version of this is that gradually over time, this process like kind of reforms little communities, you know, and they might have, you know, digital adjuncts where you're talking to people in the next town over, but that you actually are kind of building through compromise, but through, and, and through kind of moving around, you're building a life together that looks coherent again. Um, but it's, it's a turbulent process. There's no question. Like we are definitely in the midst of something something very old ending in the form of like 
I think scientific materialism and something mm -hmm. very new beginning in the form of these like uh, they're almost like neo feudal medieval online communities or something. I don't know. Yeah, and I I guess that's that's why it's so important where you talk about because. You know, my evolution through philosophy is I sort of like self-studied and I started yeah. in the ancient world and you know, I started with Socrates and Plato and the Stoics and uh, the cynics. And, you know, I just, like I followed sort of the progression of Western mind. And for mm -hmm. some reason, once I started hitting like the more modern world with the, with the exception of like a few thinkers in the more kind of like, you know, post 1800s philosophy, I really lost like connection. I just, you know, I didn't mm. really have like a connection to what I was reading. I wasn't super inspired by a lot of it. Yeah. There were some cool ideas and it kind of opened my mind, but I, I, I don't know. I, I lost a, a connection to that. And I think, you know, as I progress and as you follow the Western mind chronologically like that, mm. um, you, you wind up, at least for me, I kind of wound up at Nietzsche. Nietzsche was kind of like, that was like the end point. Nietzsche to me was the culmination of the Western mind and where it was headed. And to me, mm. Nietzsche is still my favorite, even though he's more of a modern. I just, I love his thought. I think he's very misunderstood. I think that there are parts of his philosophy that are very enlightening, are very powerful, that can help someone. I do think there are parts of his philosophy <clears throat> that I experienced recently can be very damaging and can actually... Mm you know, be harmful. I think that one thing, you know, a lot of people mistake is, you know, he wasn't celebrating the death of God when he said God is dead. You know, he's, he's lamenting it mm. because he understands that like God was like the idea of God, you know, whether you, know, you believe God exists or not, the idea of God kept people unified. It kept, mm. you know, like as Karl Marx says, right? Like religion is the opiate of the masses. It, it kind of just keeps people like congruent and quiet and sort of like content and gives them like a, a centering inside of themselves that grounds them despite the chaos of the world. Um, and mm. as we lose that, it's, it's so important, I think, to focus on finding that grounding. And like you said, finding what's true, right? Like I, I always told myself, like, there is no objective truth, you know, like you're Rene Descartes, you know, how do you know you're not just a brain in a jar and there's a demon yeah. that's influencing you and making you feel and think and experience. And like, that's true, right? Like logically, if I think through it, I, I can't disprove any of that. It, it's very hard, but at the same time, like there has to be an absolute, uh, it, it just, if, if there is no absolute, there just, there is nothing. And I, something that's been hard for me, I guess I'm leading up to a question for you, but yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. something that's been hard for me is like in philosophy and thinking, I think that there's frequently two opposing sides of a, of an argument. And, you know, like Aristotle talks about like, you know, the, the golden mean, or, um, you know, like for example, courage is, is in between brashness and, hmm. you know, cowardice, right. We, we have to kind of find that balance in between the two. And it's something that I've always struggled with. And I've asked religious people is, you know, how do you reconcile faith with, with logic? Right. So hmm. I guess, I know this is a super loaded question, right? And maybe there's not sufficient time, but you know, for you personally, yeah. how do you reconcile, you know, faith with, with logic, the logical Western mind kind of meets that the spiritual, you know, absolute. 
okay, I'm going to say some stuff and then we're going to have to talk again another time sure. because there's like sure. so much here. But yeah, uh, yeah I know. It's not okay. enough time. <laughs> um, first of all, just a brief question. In your journey to kind of the 19th century, uh, did you ever encounter any Dostoevsky? Um, I, I haven't, I have some of his books on my shelf. I haven't gotten into okay. them yet. Um, but yeah, I, I asked this I, with no, I'm not asking to shame you. I just, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm asking, um, because there's this wonderful essay by Heidegger, Martin Heidegger, who was a very complicated, much like Nietzsche was a very complicated figure, uh, and ended up, you know, caving to joining the Nazi party essentially. And, um, but, but Heidegger understands Nietzsche's death of God, I think very, very exactly. Um, and he says that what it amounts to is a, a an admission and acknowledgement, as you say, in, in some way, a kind of lament that, um, the all transcendental ideas have lost their persuasive force. And Nietzsche saw this before almost anybody else did. That's why he put the words God is dead into the mouth of a madman is because he felt like one, right? He felt like he was yeah. looking at this world that had basically become materialist, that that had accepted mechanics, Newtonian mechanics as like the final answer to all questions, the final account of all reality. And he said, and you people walk around in this world as if there's still such a thing as virtue or love or grace or god right but those are all non-material concepts they're they're nowhere to be touched or felt at one point in his book daybreak he says you know we look back to the history of mankind for to find greatness in our origins and all we find there is the ape you know there's like just this sort of natural churning of all you know warring against all and so you know when heidegger says that or interprets nietzsche that way um, to me, it feels like, and I think this is what he was getting at, it, it feels like a flattening out of, of reality, like the vertical dimension of existence has somehow disappeared. And his attempt to kind of refound a new morality is an attempt to find a new, a new vertical dimension, right? That's, which is ultimately, I think, where he, where he fails and, and goes wrong. Um, yeah. Because the, in, in my view, essentially, there is no other vertical dimension. Like either there is the one that we have sort of intuited and felt and known and blindly groped towards since the yeah. dawn of time, um, or there is none. And so I raised Dostoevsky because Dostoevsky, uh, Nietzsche said that Dostoevsky was the only psychologist from whom he had anything left to learn. He stumbled upon one of his books in a bookstore and was blown away and haunted by Dostoevsky, who was the, basically the only other person that saw all of this coming and and Dostoevsky's novels are prophetic um there's there's a character in one of them that is almost identical to like the the Leninist revolutionaries to Trotsky and the, the you know the sort of predicts the whole red terror because he sees the emptiness of this flat universe right he sees that inside of it people are just going to be uh basically fighting like savages and tearing one another apart um and so Dostoevsky's approach, which is quite different, and he he did kind of retain his faith, although he was a tortured man. Um, he essentially says, "Yeah, the the absolutes, the moral excellence, the transcendental ideas—they're not like 
out there in some floaty other platonic space. Um, and so if you go looking for them there, it will sort of seem as if science has disproved them because science can account for so much physically. Um, but what you have to understand is that the spiritual realities are, are here too. They're, they occupy the same physical space and time as the mundane kind of motion of, of matter through the world. And so in, in novels like um, The Brothers Karamazov, what, what kind of happens is people live exactly as their philosophy seems to dictate, and yet there is this kind of irreducible humanity to them in their actions and in their life. And to me, it's like, you know, either we are, as you say, deceived by Descartes' demon and all of this kind of extra human stuff that we layer onto our science is just bunk, right? Like, you're not really in love, it's just chemicals. Like, you don't really uh, aspire to greatness, that's just a like a blip of adrenaline or something. Um, or we're not deceived, and that the, the world throbs with more than matter. So you don't have to give up an ounce of your sort of scientific uh, accuracy. You can describe yeah. the world in purely <clears throat> logical material terms, but logic itself demands that in order to even do that describing, the you who describes must be something more than, than matter. You must be something with free will that can make choices, that can evaluate truth and falsehood. Um, and so if you get to a point where you've explained your own self away, um, and then there's an alternative view that says yourself is real and, and, and morality is real and, and you know, the, the, the transcendental plane is real. Um, which of those two points of view is more logical? You know, like which of those is, it leads to madness and which one accounts for the world more fully? For me, it's actually faith that, that has more, more reason in it, like it, and, and a clearer, truer description of the world. Yeah. So, so much to unpack. Um, There's a lot there. I know. You know, it makes me think too, like Nietzsche, something that I got obsessed with when I was kind of going through this, uh, I'll, I'll just say I, I went through an abyss. Okay. Like yeah. I, you know, my progression of philosophy, kind of my desire to have faith in something, but not really finding faith. And, um, I got obsessed with Nietzsche's philosophy and his focus on the Dionysian. And I, mm. you know, this idea of kind of like, we've been too stuck in Apollo that the logical, you know, kind of like structure in Western mind has like destroyed kind of our deeper, more animalistic kind of like urges and things right? like, we, we forgot to kind of celebrate the, the God of drunkenness and learn to hmm. laugh and we became so logical and I got obsessed with this idea, you know, to the point that I have like Nietzsche and like Dionysus and Apollo busts and stuff all over. Mm. And, you know, I, I thought I was on the right course, right? Like I, I felt like, okay, you know, my emotional side's been trapped by this logical mind. I've been living carefully. I've been, um, I've been too focused on like structure and thought and I need to start living not recklessly, but more impulsively. I need to start living through my emotions. I need to start living through my feelings and my impulses. And long story short, I mean, there's a progression of this, but I was in a long relationship. I, mm. you know, got into this like weird, uh, like hookup thing with this, you know, other woman. And, you know, I got very confused. I ended up, you know, 
ending a you know long long relationship you know cheating doing a lot of things that just really like for me they're they're very out out of character they don't feel like me and i got obsessed with this idea of like you know the the ubermensch and the Mm. will right like i need to i need to manifest my will and i started you know i went out and i got a condo and i was you know hooking up with all these women and uh you know i it, it hit me when i was seriously considering going out and getting like a, this like blacked out like bmw convertible right i was like huh. i was and i got obsessed with like furnishing my apartment with all these like philosophy busts and books and it, it hit me it was like the bmw was the wake up call i was like man like this this is not me like what hmm. am i doing like what is this image that i'm that i'm trying to create of like you know i'm trying to be this like this man or this person um and there was, you know, there was this one woman that I, you know, was seen and she said, you know, when I met you, you seemed like, you know, part of the reason that I liked you is because you were, you know, you were kind of like quiet, reserved, like, you know, wise, like, you know, you were very, like, you were very into like philosophy. And she's like, you know, now I just, I see you and I just feel that you're like disconnected. And that, like mm. that, that really got into me. I was like, you know, I, I am disconnected. Like, I don't, me trying to like go into this has completely disconnected me from something deeper. And I think that that, that's Mm. what kind of opened my eyes. And then, you know, when I met my, um, my now fiance, we were having a discussion and I was talking about philosophy and all these things. And she's looks at things with like a little bit more of like a, you know, faith kind of just like common sense viewpoint, not trying to dissect everything, but just experiencing it. And, She's like, you know, you can ask questions forever, right? Like you, you can hmm. infinite. And, and I know this, right? Like from my studies, <laughs> very wise. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can always just keep questioning and questioning and questioning. But at some point, like you either go crazy like Nietzsche did, or you decide to put your faith into something. And I, you know, I think of Kierkegaard and the leap onto faith. And there's, there's hmm. so much in that, right? That like, if we just pull everything apart, there's absolutely nothing solid to stand on. And if as human beings mm. right there, there has to be something to stand on. There has to be something solid to believe in. Wow. What a story. Um, yeah. It's funny because the sort of life that you are describing and the sort of attempt to fill the void or to seize initiative back or whatever, um, that is also very right wing coded. I'm not trying to yeah. peg you as a like crypto conservative or anything, but mm-hmm. there is this strain of thought now online, maybe you know, that is very heavily Nietzschean. Like it's inflected with all this Nietzschean, and it and it kind of overlaps with some of the Manosphere stuff and some of the Andrew Tate stuff, but it's it's not quite the same. And it it basically, you know, there's a lot in it to kind of really. Um, understand and admire i think because it it's a reaction against as you say the true things that nietzsche sees about our kind of you know whatever hyper softened culture inversion of values right that he talks about yeah yes exactly and it's like he's right about that and so it's easy to think that he's right about the solution too but the problem is that the solution is basically to, instead of seeking meaning from the outside world, to generate it from yourself, right? Which just leads, as you're indicating, to kind of these bigger and bigger displays of 
selfhood, like the just sheer abundance of my masculinity, my wealth, my like ability, my impulsives, my impulsive streak, like all of that will kind of fill the void and I will create meaning and value out of, out of nothing. And ultimately the reason that this leads so often to madness uh, is that we discover that there, there, we're not a source. We're not an original source of virtue. You know, like we are seekers after virtue and we feel that in just our whole orientation. Um, and as your fiance very wisely said, like at a certain point, we actually have to fix ourselves, our eyes on a North star and start traveling in that direction, which means admitting that you're not going to be the kind of wellspring of all like meaning and cosmic significance which is which is a humbling thing but which seems kind of inescapable to a certain extent and which ultimately ironically will give you all of that vitality and kind of masculinity and just like the i don't know the um joie de vivre and the kind of energy that you are longing for right in the other way of life um you'll get all of that if you if you fix your eyes on some external good right something that's really worthy of your of your worship um just it'll come naturally in the process uh but it is like it, it, it's it's sort of remarkable to me how powerful nietzsche is now um because his diagnosis of the world remains so so powerful um that that like it's very easy to just start kind of i don't know trying to trying to build the self that he prescribes and yeah ultimately i think it, it you, you've got to set your heart on something higher yeah for sure mm -hmm. and you know that, that that i think that's a good segue into like you know something i wanted to touch on in my book i talk a lot about like eudaimonia mm -hmm. and you know just kind of this like flourishing of self and you know this this idea of like arate and like being, being excellent, right. For, for excellence sake, for growth's sake. Um, yeah. you know, I think when I adopted a little bit more of this, like Nietzschean, Nietzschean mindset, it was like, I know it was different. It's like, I wanted to be excellent for excellence's sake, right? Like hmm. I just wanted to be excellent or I wanted to be like, like strong for strength's sake versus like for wisdom's sake, I guess. Um, you know, when you talk about eudaimonia, you know, like what mm. do you think is so important about that? And you know, just kind of give me some of your thoughts on that, I guess. Sure. Um, well, there are kind of two concepts, I think, that we have to bear in mind. One, as you say, is eudaimonia, which is uh, something like kind of flourishing, right? Human flourishing, which is in the uh, subtitle of your book, right? How to flourish in, in the modern day. So right. it's very, uh, it, 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 you're absolutely right. I think that it's the thing we lack is flourishing. It's like, we've got plenty of satisfaction, plenty of consent, plenty of, uh, you know, stability and all these sort of, uh, you know, genuine goods that we aspire to, but to flourish is like way more than that. It's way richer and deeper. Um, flourishing comes from the pursuit of arete, which is the word for virtue or excellence. Um, and absolutely, those things are good in themselves. So the cardinal virtues, the classical cardinal virtues <clears throat> are moderation, courage, wisdom, and justice, right? Um, then Christianity adds faith, hope, and love. And, and these are the different um, 
refinements of the human person, right? Um, and what Aristotle says about them is that the reason they're good for you is because they're just identical to what it is for you to be the fullest version of the kind of thing that you are. So a human is a kind of thing. Uh, it's a body that has a soul, right? A, a rational animal, an embodied soul. Um, and your pursuit of excellence is just trying to grow into um, the fullness of, of what that is and what it can be. And so just as a flower begins as a seed and then only reaches the end of its natural lifespan once it has like produced its own seeds and burst into bloom and all that. Um, so too, we have a natural life trajectory, but ours involves choices because we have the rational ability to deliberate between options. And this creates a situation in which we have to be participants, essentially, in that growth, that process of coming to, to bloom. Um, and in making the right choices, we basically instill habits in ourselves. I mean, you know this, even just like from the gym, for instance, right? It's like, you don't really want to at first, and then you force yourself to because you know, it's good. So your reason is kicking in, right to sort of like, um, offer you a, a good, you you go after it. And eventually, you come to love it, right? You have a certain, you take a certain pleasure in it. And that like, feedback loop, it leads you into a virtue of character, which is an ethike arete, meaning an ethical virtue, right? That's where we get our word ethics. Um, so like eudaimonia in a certain sense is, is your quote unquote reward for that. Like if you are really doing this, the stuff that you are made to do as you are made to do it, um, then you will experience a delight, a flourishing, a, a joy. Um, but <laughs> It's not like the kind of reward that you get <clears throat> if you're, I don't know, playing ring toss at the carnival and you get a stuffed Sonic, right? Like, it's not some sort of external thing that's being added on to you. It is just the, the experience, the spiritual, physical yeah. experience of being excellent, of virtue, of, of pursuing the good. It's a beautiful way of, of looking at all of this, I think, and, and has a, a, an enormous amount of truth to it. The thing you have to accept if you want to believe in it is you have to believe that you really are a, a coherent being, like a kind of thing with a purpose and not just an accidental product of evolution. Um, and, and once you believe that, a lot of things about kind of what will make you truly happy start to fall into place. Very, very well said. I think like what you kind of emphasized there that I was searching for the words for was I think that I was obsessed with excellence from a sense of like power, like the, the will yeah. to power, right? It's like, I want to be excellent because it's like the fullest way for me to express my power is like to take my will and to make myself excellent in all things, right? Like that, that was mm. like the Ubermensch for me was yes, like, I have this like will inside of me and I can, I can influence the universe and everything to bend to me so that I can be this like superhuman thing. Right. So it's like very, right. very ego driven as opposed to being a connection, as you mentioned to, to like, to virtue and wisdom. And it's, there's something uh, so important in that, I think, yeah. because that insight that you were really, Aristotle is obsessed with why are you doing what you're doing? Right. And this is the key to virtue ethics is that you should be doing 
the good thing because it's good and you like what is good and you hate what is bad, right? Now, nobody's ever perfect in that endeavor, but that's always the, the aim. And so if you are doing, the reason that this is so important is because if you are doing right for some other reason, whether acknowledged or secret, smuggled in under the rug, um, then you ultimately will behave not according to the logic of virtue, but according to the thing that you are using virtue to get at, right? Um, if you're if you're doing virtuous things because they show your power, um, maybe because you'll get accolades for them, because you will, if anything else, right? The minute that thing is lies somewhere other than the virtuous path, you're going to veer off over there because secretly that's your aim. That's what you're doing. So that's why it's really important that eudaimonia um, is not a reward that is extrinsic to the good, but it consists in the thing itself so that you can rely on yourself to do what is right, even when it's hard, even when it's scary, even when you get mm -hmm. punished for it, or it seems weak in the eyes of the world, like whatever your other kind of poison is, um, you have to be able to be immune to it. And the way to do that is to love virtue in and of itself. Right. Yeah. Which, which is so why it's so important that we have that virtue grounding or that, that mm. something solid, right? Because everything else bases off of that. If, if there is nothing solid that we can base it off of, then there, there just, there is no house, right? If there's no foundation, there's yeah. no house. Um, yep. And then anything is permitted. Anything goes. And it's, it's just a Absolutely. matter of interpretation at that point. There, there is no absolute. I mean, this is why that opiate of the masses quote, you know, GK Chesterton said the Soviets, uh, of course, were exactly right about that. They just got it precisely backwards, that religion is actually the one thing in a time of persecution that you can plant your feet in and True. resist, right? That if the state comes for you, you have to have something greater than the state. Right, you have to believe in something more than the powers of the world, um, and virtue is uh, ultimately, since I believe it belongs to God. Right, virtue is is a form of that kind of transcendental grounding, if you like. Right, it, it makes me think of, uh, and I we're we're running kind of close on time here, so I can't delve into sure. it as much as I like to. Um, but you know, I I went through a period where I was reading uh, Proverbs a lot, and I think it's so mm. striking that we hear from lady wisdom, which makes me think of like Boethius, right? Being in his pr prison cell and like reading like yes. lady wisdom comes to him and gives him these visions. But, you know, lady wisdom tells us in her own words, she's like, I, I was there when God created the universe. I mm. watched, I watched all of the creation. I watched everything. And, you know, basically to live without me is, is to live without God, right? Like to live mm. without wisdom in your life is, is to live without anything absolute. Right. I mean, yeah. in, in a way, it's it's very hard to differentiate and separate, I think, wisdom from the idea of God, because they're, they're so intertwined from from creation, from Genesis. Well put. Well put. Yes, of course, um, the Christian tradition identifies Lady Wisdom in Proverbs variously with the second or third person of the Trinity. My my intuition is that the second is right, that that's the son, right, the, the um through whom all things were created. But this idea that, right, yeah, like wisdom is not just knowledge, right? It's not just information about stuff. Yes. Um, it's, mm -hmm. it's the kind of understanding that gives shape to knowledge. Um, and without that, if you don't have the idea of form, how could you make anything, right? Like how could God have created the world if he didn't have intrinsic to himself some shaping principle as well? Like he didn't just pour a bunch of dirt 
kind of out into the void, right? He made earth, which is like, has a shape and he formed man out of the clay. And that, that um, the Hebrew word is yatsar to, um, to like mold, like a potter molds something. And that's the word that's often used of God's action. Um, but yeah, to do that, you have to have a, a, what Aristotle would call the formal cause, like in, in your head, which is, I think what wisdom is, is serving as there. Well said. And it, yeah, I mean, I think a good place to kind of end before I hop into like the the ending segment and just kind of, I, I've got some questions I want to run through you on a personal level, but. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I think that that's the big thing. And I, this is something that I've been wrestling with a lot is like that difference between wisdom and knowledge, right? It's yeah. like just knowledge is it, it can be really dangerous, right? Um, mm. Like knowledge of how to build a nuclear weapon without the wisdom of what to do with that knowledge, right? Like yeah. it, it's the wisdom that can can take that that technology and turn it into a place a way for us to generate power and you know to to maintain peace and things like that, right? But just the knowledge of how to build a nuclear bomb with absolutely no wisdom is is chaotic, and we see that everywhere like pure knowledge mm -hmm. is is dangerous unless there's that wisdom of how to apply it behind it absolutely absolutely well said so i have a few questions um i ask it all my guests um you know just Great. kind of on a personal level right like a little bit kind of who what makes you kind of who you are um the, the first one is you know like do you, do you have any daily habits that you run through just on a daily basis you try to maintain yeah, sure. Uh, absolutely. I do. I mean, I am kind of a creature of that. Like I think habit is really crucial uh, for yeah. a whole bunch of reasons, in part because that virtue ethics we were just talking about is all a matter of habit. Like Aristotle says that ethos, which is habit, is what forms your ethos, which is your character. Um, so the first one's waking up super early. It sounds like we both kind of do that. Um, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm an early morning supremacist. I know that it's supposed to be kind of a matter of no consequence whether you work late or, or get up early. But for me, the early morning hours are really when I do my best work, especially writing because there's no one else around, you know. Um, but then prayer is the big one for me. I mean, it, there's this line in the uh, epistles, pray without ceasing, um, which is kind of crazy if you think about it, like how is that even possible? But everything is supposed to be a, a, an act of, of prayer. And I learned this in college when I was really struggling. I had to like reach out for help for anything that I did, you know, um, and I, that's still really stuck with me and sort of make sure to reorient myself in that vertical, uh, in that, in that vertical dimension, I guess, throughout the day. Um, and then, you know, other than that, like the going out to the gym is, has become incredibly important to me, uh, just cause otherwise I like don't see anybody in person or like leave the house most days um, sure. and so some sort of like contact with the world with you know your with your body with like uh sunlight and just existing is like very salutary for me for the kind of work that i do yeah I, those are those are all big things and you know I, I of course i expected or you know i'm sure that reading's part of that you know i'm sure you have a lot more oh, habits yeah, than that too but yeah um yeah. prayer is something that i've been tapping into a lot more mm. lately and um something that i think i was uh was neglecting but i i do think like all the time like the, the more the more you can like pray and like center yourself and just kind of remind yourself that like you're not your job you're not the anxiety that you feel you're not like mm. the, the six pack you're not 
like yeah. any of the stuff, right? Like none, none of that is you. There, there is something deeper to you and call it consciousness, call it a spirit, call it whatever you will. Prayer connects you to that. It takes you mm -hmm. out of your body and meditation, I think does the same thing to, to an extent, but you know, it, it removes you from this like physical kind of existence and it reminds you that there, there's something bigger. I, I think that's super, super powerful. Absolutely. Yeah. I guess I didn't mention reading cause that's my job. Yeah, uh, but given. yeah, my, my job entails like, uh, reading and, and writing mostly. So I'm lucky that way. And, um, on reading, uh, hmm. if, I know this is going to be a tough one for you, uh, <laughs> but if you had to pick two books out of, you know, all the books you've ever read, what, what would you recommend to somebody? Well, I recently heard a friend say that it would be good to read Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics once every year. And I really like that. It's it's one of his most practical books by design. It's about what to do. And it's about a lot of the stuff we've been talking about comes from the Nicomachean Ethics. Yeah. So I there's a lot of stuff in the ancient world that, that could kind of count um, here. But I think that's one um, that it would really repay because books that are meant to seep into your habitual life. They have to be revisited, right? They're not just like, Oh, I read it. And now I figured it out. Um, mm -hmm. That so, so that's one that's just sort of really uh, central for me. It just kind of sits right in the, at the heart of my concerns. Um, and I think it's extremely useful to basically everybody um, about how to be good at being human. And then um, the other one, I guess would have to be, the Bible, you know, if you're only going to read two, but, uh, if I can cheat and say like that, the Bible is almost like a way of life more than a, a work of, of literature. Although, I mean, you could say, even if you weren't religious, like you have to read this thing to know like where all of our language comes from, but sure. I don't know if that counts or not. So if it, if it doesn't, I would say the, uh, the complete works of Shakespeare, just like there, there's almost every human, uh, activity almost every human passion to be found in there you'll you'll learn more about human nature from his plays than almost anything else nice and you know i was reading um i have like a you know collection of like the the shakespearean tragedies and i was actually yeah. i was reading that when i kind of ran into you and i wanted to read your book so i actually paused shakespeare nice. my, my shakespeare reading so i could get through your book so we, i i could talk to you a little bit um I'm going to have to answer for that in, in heaven. I think that I took you away from Shakespeare, but uh, hopefully, hopefully I'll, Bill will forgive me. Yeah. I'll, I'll hop back in. I, I don't think that, uh, you, you know, at least there was some Shakespeare in your book, right? There was some yes. references in there. So, mm -hmm. um, now what about, um, and I get, I get mixed answers on this one. Do you have any personal like heroes, anybody like you really look up to? Um, it's interesting. I was thinking about this because, you know, ideally, I try not to like, you know, elevate anybody above, um, yeah. Yeah. like the level of, uh, but uh, of living, of living men, I admire my father enormously. Um, actually, both mm -hmm. of my parents are, um, have always been kind of role models for me, let's say, if not, if not heroes. Um, Winston Churchill is somebody that just like, every time I read something about him or by him i'm freshly sort of amazed at his sheer energy and and stamina besides the kind of courage and, and resilience there's a passage in his memoir of of early life in which he says you know don't worry 
if you haven't accomplished anything yet, like there's still time, 20 to 25, those are the years. And of course, by 25, Churchill had like fought in a war and been a, you know, correspondent for some of the country's best newspapers and all this sort of incredible stuff. Um, And yeah, so so that that was sort of depressing coming across that. But no, just I mean, the, the the sheer expanse of that life and the resilience it took for him to uh, stay the course that he was on. That's that's something I sort of think about a lot. And I think about Marcus Aurelius a lot, too. Um, he's kind of a classic mm. one. But yeah. I love, you know, his meditations. You get such an intimate picture of a man who was genuinely great um, wrestling with anxiety and self-condemnation and all this like it's not a you know triumphalist book about how great his philosophy is it's like a series of inner reprimands about how much he feels he's falling short and i find that very relatable and i think like the fact that that's the inner life of a guy who was so accomplished and so admirable um that's something to kind of keep close to your heart and mind yeah it's very uh very human right i mean it's it's a diary right? You're, you're reading this, you're reading this guy's thoughts basically. So, um, you, you get a not idealized picture of who he was, but you, you get more of an insight into like who, who he actually was in his thoughts. Yep. No question. Now this one, um, again, another, I get mixed on this one. We we get into a little bit of the deeper questions now, but, uh, yeah. do, Do you have any like major setbacks or kind of dark periods in your life that stand out that I guess changed your trajectory and sort of brought you to who you are today? I definitely, I definitely do. Um, there are a couple I'll, I'll, I'll focus on one, I think. Um, but you know, we can, we can get into more another time perhaps. I, I mentioned that in college, I sort of, built my prayer life from the ground up. And I'd only been baptized uh, when I was 18. So right before I left for college. And there was this period when I had worked so hard to get into the school I wanted to get into. And it was, you know, crushingly difficult. It was like just Mm -hmm. every day, 110%. And I think I got there and I just thought I had made it. I was like, oh, I don't don't have to work anymore. Like, (laughs) I'll just kind of coast and that really quickly became a toxic a poisonous way of of living um i i won't like claim to have been such a wild you know cool guy that i did all sorts of like crazy drugs or whatever i didn't really but i uh i entered what i think is probably something like a depression like i just sort of lost a lot of my direction and motivation um and that's when i first encountered the negative power of habit i think in in the deepest possible way because by the time i realized that i had made Mm. a mistake that actually i loved working and i should try to accomplish more now that i had done this one thing that i was into and that i had a whole long life ahead of me and i didn't want to just like lie around for it um once i figured that out it was sort of too late for me to like get back in the swing of things. Like I just, I, I had become kind of listless and lost a lot of my discipline. Um, and that was the first time in my life that I realized I didn't have the internal resources to meet a challenge. Um, and so, as I said, the only thing that ever got me out of it was that I slowly realized I had to just pray for the discipline to do 
anything, like an incredibly humbling experience to be like, I'm not going to be able to get out of bed and brush my teeth unless I ask God for the motivation. But I genuinely came in that time to realize that that was my situation. Like that was my state. And I still believe that about myself in some fundamental way. Like that's, I think where, where we all are is in that position of need. So, you know, very painful, like kind of a, a regrettable time in some ways. I made a lot of mistakes, but also, you know, the foundation stone of a, a lot of what I've done ever since. And I think that's not too uncommon to kind of come out of those periods with a feeling like, you know, maybe it wasn't ideal, but you also got something you would never have gotten out of it, which for me was prayer. Yeah, I find, I find that really interesting too, because, <clears throat> you know, it's like, you're, I mean, that story is one that I hear a lot, you know, like people, they go to, yeah. they go to college and then they, they hit the real world and they're like, this is it. You know, um, yeah. I, it, a lot of the stories that I hear from like high achievers, people that have, you know, done things of note is that it's like, you, you work so hard to reach this point and then you hit the point and then you have this like crisis of meaning where, mm. you know, like Frankel kind of talks about like, you know, it's like everything you've done has been for that moment and then you reach that moment and then you kind of have to reset. And I think that, you know, a lot of people respond to that by going through a depression and then kind of like setting the next goalpost. Mm. Um, I, I find it interesting that you had a, a different sort of response and kind of like humbling yourself and just kind of saying, all right, there's a, there's a meaning in, you know, God beyond me um, mm. and, and making yourself small as opposed to being like, okay, well, like now I've got to go, go for the next thing. Um, oh, interesting. I, yeah. I mean, I've never quite thought about it that way, but like, I've certainly done more since that time than I ever thought sure. I would be able to. Um, but yeah, I think part of that experience was just like, kind of thinking it out out down the line and saying well you know i just got into yale right and like it was great and that was nice but it didn't fulfill me forever like it's not yeah. i'm not actually set for life and so presumably if i now like well, i don't know fly a rocket to the moon or win the nobel prize or whatever like I'll just be in the same position. Like it, it, it sort of it became clear to me that, you know, all man's riches are, are as nothing, right? Like that, that, that you could go as far as you wanted in the direction of achievement. And if you didn't have something extra beyond that, it was always going to be a little bit disappointing. Um, and I think that that's held true. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I freaking love success. Like I, I want to succeed. I'm an extremely ambitious person. Um, yeah. But I think you know, Milton calls ambition the last infirmity of noble mind. And that's, I think, really right. Like, if if it's if that's your highest good, just like if power is your highest good or money or whatever, yeah, you'll ultimately get burned. Yeah. Oh, man, I wish I, I'm going to I don't know, I'm going to have to either come on your show or we're going to have to have like a, yeah, man. another conversation or like an off camera conversation. But uh, absolutely. Last um you know, last, last question I have for you, uh, this is the big one, you know, that I think adds a lot of, uh, kind of insight. If you could go back in time, hop in a time machine, go back to, you know, I, I usually say like a teenage you, cause I feel, you know, the teen years are a time where most people are kind of struggling. They're trying to look for direction. They're figuring things out. Yeah. If you could go back and give yourself a piece of advice, uh, knowing what you know now, what, what would it be? 
Yeah. It's, <laughs> this is hard because when you, whenever I think about kind of steering my younger self in a better course, you know, like invest in Netflix or like whatever, I come to feel as if, well, would I then become the person who could give that advice? Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. any advice that I give, I'm able to give because of what that younger guy is kind of having to wrestle with and, and, and struggle through. Um, but I think the first thing I would try to impress upon him would be always tell the truth. Always, always, always tell the truth. Do not lie. Um, just because like you, even before you start to get into the thing about like, you know, God will make you answer for all your sins. Like you're going to eat that lie somewhere yes. down the line. And any gain that you get out of it is going to, evaporate in your hand so it's not even worth it's like presumably you're lying because you want to get something and it's like you're you're not gonna get that thing in the way that you're imagining and it's not gonna be worth the lie and you're ultimately probably gonna like fall apart around it um and and these sorts of things you know they start very small saint saint thomas aquinas has a small error in the beginning uh, leads to a big one in the end and they just grow and grow, you know? So I, I guess I would say, uh, always tell the truth because that's really all you have, you know? And I've done a, like an okay job of that throughout my life, but there, there's definitely like, I, I could have just like told my, my kid self that I think, um, and he would have been much better off just to like know that because, because what you can tell yourself from the future is you can, you can see how that's working out. Like as a kid, you want all these things, you don't know where to go. And like, you know, you, you, you can't be assured that it's going to work out, but I guess I would want to reassure myself as a, as a young guy, like, you know, if, if you tell the truth, you actually will live the best of all possible lives, like the best life available to you. Yeah. It makes, it makes me think of, uh, you know, like the, the wages of sin is death, right. Or like mm. the wage of sin is death. Like it, it I, I've come to realize more recently as I've kind of gone through my spiritual thing that, you know, acting without wisdom, you know, IE also known as sin yes, is, you know, like it's its own punishment. It, yeah. Like you, you almost like hell is created for you because of the consequences of, of your action. Like, you know, like mm. you tell a lie and now you have constant worry that, you know, someone will discover the lie. You have, guilt you have to deal with repercussions when you get when it gets found out you you lose something in yourself and some respect for yourself i mean there's a lot of negative things that go in when you you know commit a like a sin right that yeah it's its own kind of punishment and yeah you know i think the other thing you tap on there which i think the real answer to this question if, if i could pick an answer is that you know it, it just kind of like remind yourself like hey have faith in your process because yeah, it, it leads you to who you are, right? I mean, like, it just kind of whatever happens, learn to love your fate, you know, accept it, have faith and, you know, move forward. And eventually you will be where you're supposed to be. You'll, you'll get where you're destined. Clear eyes, full heart can't lose, right? Isn't that the yeah. Friday Night Lights uh, slogan? Yeah, absolutely. All right, Spencer, I think we got to uh, wrap it up. I, uh, again, loved having a conversation with you. I, I would love to link back up in the future. 
Um, again, yeah, for you know, anybody looking on YouTube, I've got the uh, cover here, How to Save the West. Highly, highly recommended. Um, do, you, do you have any, uh, you know, any current projects or anything you want to you know, mention real quick before we sign off here? Oh, well, first of all, it's been such a delight. Thank you for, for having me. I'm really glad we're connected. And yeah, we'll, we'll talk again soon in some format or another, I'm, I'm sure. Um, yeah, I just kind of fired back up my podcast. I took a break because I'm working on some stuff with The Daily Wire. I saw. Um, I loved the but... first episode back, by the way. Oh, I, thank you. That's the only thank one I've listened to, but I really liked the ideas there. That's the only one I've uh, I've put out. So I'm about to go yeah. after I sign off with you. I'm going to go record the next one. Um, so it's called Young Heretics, and you can you can get it really wherever you get podcasts, Apple Podcasts, drop five stars, or whatever. And I think I think I have my little Chiron with my yeah my Twitter handle is at Spencer Clavin. So that's the other place to find me. Cool. All right, Spencer. Awesome. Well, um, you know, thanks again. And I I know that uh, I think I saw something on your post that you're. You got like some secret kind of stuff in the works. I think I saw it on Instagram. You're like working on something with uh, the Daily Wire or something too. So yeah, I'm not definitely. Mistaken. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, uh, it's, I guess it's secret in its outlines, but it's no secret that that is going to happen. Yeah. We've, right. we've been filming some stuff, editing it now. Um, it's on in the works for sure. And I'm, that's amazing, man. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that as well. So thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thanks again. And I uh, can't, can't wait to link up with you again in the future here. So likewise, likewise. Thanks Shane. Yep. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Renaissance wisdom podcast. And hopefully you learned at least one lesson on today's episode. Our mission here is to uncover practical wisdom to create a better way of living for our audience. If you enjoyed this episode, Please help us by leaving the show a review on your podcast platform of choice and by giving it a share on social media. This really helps us to grow our audience and to continue to add more episodes. If you are interested in learning more, please check out our website at renaissance-wisdom.com or check out the book that started it all, Renaissance Wisdom, How to Flourish in the Modern Day, now on Amazon. Thank you again, and may wisdom be your guide.